You know, you're killing me with that song. You're killing everyone with that song. You're going to drive the people away. And it's not that bad. I'm over here. Zoom. Hello. Hmm. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Oh, good Lord. Why do I deal with this? What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. I'm looking to my left. I'm looking to my right. No Alan Joaquin. Where could he be? I'm over here. I'm at home. I'm at... Wait, we're going to tell people what? I'm in quarantine because I got exposed to the vid Monday night. Neighbor. So, you know. Well, congratulations, man. Congratulations. Um, all right. So I see you have the book behind you. What in God's name do you have next to it? Please tell me it's not. Oh, what I think yeah. Well, remember uh, last time I got, you know, cut up with that uh, medieval, you know, Viking. And you didn't, you know, the, the hatchet and you did not have any band-aids. Well, you know, I'm prepared. You want to know why I'm prepared? Because granted, yes, you're uh, your axe or whatever was uh, bigger than my little hatchet, but I came prepared and I, you know, so you may have the bigger hand, but this is like a, this is like two pairs in a hand of poker. So I'm ready to take you on for another uh, second round of uh, medieval Viking battles. Okay. Well, well, not to uh, spoil your, your fun, but it doesn't really matter if you have two, three, four, five axes, you're, at home. I am at home. We're nowhere near each other. Un- unbelievable. And one, I, it's not that I didn't have any Band-Aids. I had Band-Aids. I just didn't give you one. <laughs> Wait till next week. Beautiful. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it has already started off so well. Um, now, this is this is the the final month of the third season, so we've only got a few more episodes left in this season, and uh, also along with that, now if you want to keep in contact with us, this is the along with that. I didn't just like break off there. We've got a new newsletter that is going to be coming out, a weekly newsletter. So if you want to be part of that and you want to stay up to date on what we're doing. Uh, we've got a new documentary that's going to be coming out very soon. Uh, I have finally finished. Actually, a friend of Alan's uh, who does audio stuff professionally, he is helping us out just clean up some of the sound. So uh, huge shout out to Rob. I don't want to say his full name because I don't know how, you know, maybe an infringement on privacy. But Rob, if you're watching and listening, thank you so much. We owe you greatly uh, so a documentary is going to be coming out we've got merch and so all this stuff that you need to keep also we'll have discounts and everything so sign up for the newsletter if you want to uh send us your email address to shoot us uh an email at the sons of history at gmail.com or just dm us on facebook or instagram um yeah so we've got we've got a lot of things going on uh that documentary is part one of our road trip documentary that was that was good stuff this is going to be the denison stuff yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, we're able to work with Rob. Uh, you know, I knew Rob in high school, so, you know, it's, you know, long time coming. So uh, I'm, I'm glad he's joining us. And uh, I know you got a lot on your plate, so it'd be, it'd be great to finally have a professional doing our music soundtrack and all that. You know, because the previous guy <clears throat> wasn't, uh, anyway, go on, please. One, I will, let me go ahead and throw this out there. Um, Rob may have taken offense to what you just said with, it's been a long time coming as if he has owed us, uh, something in particular. I, I think he may think I owe you this. I, I'm going to get back an empty clip. No, Rob has been a fan of our show for a very long time and, uh, he's been wanting to, you know, get involved. And, uh, so, you know, we, we found an opportunity, um, we needed him and I, I'm glad 
that we finally, uh, you know, was able to uh, extend a hand from, or rather, take his hand of. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> he offered it. He offered or extended his hand quite a while ago, and now we are now we're like, you know, we need him. To 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 uh, today, uh, Junior. Glad we finally uh, took part in it. Man, that took you a long time to say. That was absolutely wonderful. Uh, yes. Can we just say it? Thank you, Rob. Uh, he's not doing the music soundtrack. Would you please, with the music soundtrack, you and your, hey, I got a guy in Kingwood who does, you know, does the high school band. Really? Are you going to write the score? Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has gone on long enough. I say we uh, jump into This Week in History. I think so. All right. Well, I will go ahead and start off uh, This Week in History. Mine is a collaboration of sorts. I don't know why I'm looking at you. I need to be looking at the camera because these people are the ones that, you know, actually matter. Exactly. Uh, so May 7th, May 7th, 1915 and 1945. Those are my two dates. The 1945 one may right off the bat, you may know what that pertains to. Um, but let's go with the 1951 or the 1915 one first. The British ocean liner, the RMS Lusitania was torpedoed by the German U-boat U-20. Um, this was done off the southern coast of Ireland, Orland. There were about nine, there was about 2,000 passengers, uh, 1,959 passengers and crew. And out of all of those, uh, almost 1,200 died. Uh, counts have, have put out, uh, 1,195 people died, uh, on that sunken ship uh the lusitania now 123 i've seen 114 i've seen 124 uh but let's just go with the one two three 123 american passengers died on that and the ship actually went down in like less than 20 minutes they said that there was like an there was the torpedo explosion and then it was like a secondary explosion i don't think they've really come to an exact conclusion of what that second explosion was once that second explosion um, happened, that ship just, it sunk super fast, and which is why you had so many people uh, die uh, from that. Now, we go to 1945, May 7th, 1945. This is 30 years later in a schoolhouse in Reims or Reims. How would you say that? Reims, Germany or Reims, Germany? R-E-I-M-S? Yeah. I, I heard it's uh, pronounced Reims. Rennes. Rennes. Right. It's like the it's like the capital of uh, the Champagne district. Okay, so Rennes, Germany. Um, a man by the name of General Alfred Jody or Yodi. Yodel. Yodel. Okay. Yodel. The J is silent. Yeah, that's an L, not an I. Yodel. Uh, he signed the unconditional surrender of all of Germany, ending World War II in Europe. Uh, the document would take effect one minute after midnight on May 9th. Um, in other German news, uh, on May 6, 1937 in New Jersey, the uh, German airship Verhindenburg exploded. Oh, the humanity. Funny. You know, um, the speculation that the Lusitania was uh, carrying uh, munitions... And that was possibly why there was a secondary explosion that uh, pretty much doomed the ship at a much quicker rate than had uh, just the torpedoes. So speaking of torpedoes, we will go into mine. Mine, uh, you know, Monday, May 2nd, will be the 40th anniversary of the Argentine light cruiser, the ARA General Belgrano was torpedoed and sunk by a UK nuclear sub called the HMS Conqueror. So uh, pretty interesting story, this ship. It used to be the USS Phoenix. It, uh, it survived the Pearl Harbor attack and it did take place, it did take part in 
uh, many operations in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Uh, it was sold to Argentina in 1951. Now, in uh, in the spring of '82, you had the uh, the Falklands War between Great Britain, or I should say, the United Kingdom and Argentina. Uh, Argentina claimed the islands as the Malvinas, and Britain said, "No, nope, it's the Falklands." So there was a war, and you know the Argentines invaded and took it over. Now, um, the United Kingdom had established a 200 nautical mile zone around the, uh, the Falkland Islands. Uh, the first one, it was known as the Maritime Exclusion Zone that was declared on April the 12th, which included all ships. Uh, but then on April 30th, they included uh, aircraft and uh, then they called it the Total Exclusion Zone. So uh, it was a 200 mile radius that went all around the Falklands. Now, there was a, you know, the, the, the Argentine ship General Belgrano was outside the exclusion zone. Uh, April the 29th, it was uh, the HMS Conqueror began to shadow it. And in London, there was a lot of debate, you know, what should we do? It's outside the exclusion zone, but it is a threat. It's not retreating. It's just, you know, moving about. Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister at the time. So, they decided, you know what, it is a threat, even though it's outside the exclusion zone, let's just go ahead and sink it. So um, on May the 2nd, the, uh, the Conqueror fired three torpedoes. Now, one torpedo hit an escort destroyer, but it did not blow up. The torpedo did not explode. But two torpedoes hit the Belgrano, the General Belgrano. They did explode, and the ship sank. So. Um, you know, it sank about 30 minutes after it was hit. It was very, very bad weather. Uh, 770 uh, Argentines survived, 323 died. Um, now, in response to the sinking, uh, because there was a lot of controversy being outside the exclusion zone, the British decided, you know what, we're going to just make the exclusion zone instead of 200 mile radius, it's just going to be the entire South Atlantic, except for the, the 12 miles outside uh, the Argentine coast. So, so effectively the whole, the whole area was, was an exclusion zone. So now a couple of interesting things about the fact that this event happened. Um, number one, it was one of two sinkings in, in action by submarines since World War II. Since World War II, there have been only two ships torpedoed and sunk in an enemy action. Now, you know, the first one was uh, in uh, December of uh, 1971. There was the India, one of the India-Pakistani wars. Um, a uh, Pakistani submarine torpedoed and sank an Indian ship. But the Pakistani ship was not a nuclear sub. The Conqueror was a nuclear sub. So this is the only time ever that a nuclear submarine sank a uh, enemy vessel in military action. So only a nuclear sub ever. And since World War II, one of two ships that had ever been sunk in action by a submarine, which is kind of funny since we spend so much money on submarines. Really haven't, there's not much that they do if you think about it other than, you know, they're, they're just there for preparedness. Um, another interesting tidbit was is that the this um, that the ship, the Phoenix slash the General Belgrano, was the last Pearl Harbor survivor to be lost in action. So that Monday, May second, will be the 40th anniversary again. Happened in 1982. Very interesting. Now I thought you were going to say that one of the last two sinkings was. Um, the the submarine that was going after the Red October, but ended up blowing itself up. Um, but that event didn't happen, and Admiral Greer was not there, and I was never here. That's right. Um, speaking of never being here, thanks for not being here. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that is this week in history. All right, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we've got a great guest for you. Uh, speaking of the Lusitania, um, World War One. We're going to be talking about World War One um, Now, Neil Lankto is our guest. He is a historian and author of four books. 
Uh, he has written Fair Dilling and Clean Playing, The Hilldale Club, and the Development of Black Professional Baseball, 1910 to 1932, Negro League Baseball, The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution, Campy, The Two Lives of Roy Campanella, and the latest, The Approaching Storm, Wilson, Roosevelt Wilson Adams and the Clash over America's Future. Loved the book. Really, really enjoyable book. I've read it cover to cover. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Neil Langto is on the line. Neil, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, hey, uh, it's this is a. I think this is maybe the first time this season uh, that Alan and I have been in separate locations. Um, so, it's. I don't want to say that I feel naked, but I do feel alone. So, um, I don't know if you've ever watched that show. So. Alan's Alan's a huge. Uh, what is it? Naked and alone, or naked and afraid? afraid. What is, oh, dang! All right. Well, I'm not afraid, but uh, anyways, <laughs> we'll go ahead and get started. Now, I wanted to ask you uh, the first question. You're so you're a historian, but primarily you've done books on baseball. How did you get from baseball to World War One? Well, I had done the three books on, really two books on the Negro League, and I had done the Roy Campanella biography. And at that point, I felt I had gone as far as I could in that area. And I, really, I was hoping to reach more readers. You know, a lot of people love sports in this country, but it doesn't mean they read books about sports in this country. So I was trying to find something more general history and kind of tap into that, that market. So that was what uh, led me to something different. And as far as this particular topic, it was really a matter of, I was looking at this older series of books about the early 20th century written by Mark Sullivan. It was known as Our Times. I mean, Mark Sullivan was this big shot journalist in the early 20th century. And he wrote in the late 20s and early 30s about modern America, six volumes, very interesting stuff. Um, and I happened to pick up some of those books and start looking through them. And I looked at the book on World War I and just thought it was really fascinating. Um, and I knew so little about it myself, and I thought this would make an interesting book, how we got into this war, because this is really significant, because our decision to go to war in 1917 had a dramatic effect on the war itself, and of course, the actual course of the 20th century. So that's what led me to pursue this topic um, and try to figure out a way to tell it, and what I decided was, let's try to find characters who can tell this story, and that led me to the trio in this book. So your book is called The Approaching Storm, uh, Roosevelt Wilson Adams and the Clash Over America's Future. Give us a breakdown of how Roosevelt Wilson and Adams felt about America getting involved in the war, because I know that those are three different avenues. Well, it's interesting. When the war began in 1914, in the summer of 1914, a lot of Americans were absolutely shocked uh, by this war. They couldn't believe such a thing was happening in the 20th century. It just seemed so barbaric. You know, aren't we, aren't we beyond this? This is the progressive era. You know, we're more enlightened. Um, and all these three individuals, you know, Wilson, Roosevelt, and Adams are going to have a different perspective um, on this. Wilson was president at the time, and he had been in office for about a year and a half. He's someone who was a very improbable politician. He had been um, an academic. He had been president of Princeton University and the Democrats came calling, got him elected uh, governor of New Jersey and then got him elected president in 1912. And he was someone who really didn't think that foreign affairs was his thing. Domestic affairs was what he was most interested in. And suddenly he's got this, this giant humongous problem dumped on his lap in the summer of 1914. And he's also coping with his very, very sick wife who's going to die in, in these early months of the war. She dies of kidney disease. So it's a very tough time for Woodrow Wilson. I mean, Wilson came to the conclusion pretty quickly that it was not our place to get involved in this war. Uh, what he was hoping to accomplish was to be a very important instrument in the peace process in the future. Uh, that that's what he wanted America to do, to help bring about peace and also help to remake the post-war world. As far as how to accomplish that, he felt that staying out was the best way. We remain very, very neutral right now. And that will be the path to us being called by the, the, these, these belligerent powers uh, for assistance in the future. So we need to be neutral. We need to be neutral in thought and, de and in deed. That's what he was pushing for in the early months of, of World War I. Uh, for Roosevelt, 
Roosevelt was out of office at this time. He'd been president till 1909. Um, he decided very quickly by 1912, he wanted to be president again, ran a third party ticket in 1912, was, was beaten. And by 1914, he's having a difficult time as far as his, his prestige in America. You know, his party is already kind of falling apart, this bull moose or progressive party. And the guy in the White House is a man he, he hates. He hates Woodrow Wilson, he detests him. And what's the worst thing is that this incredibly important global event is occurring and poor TR is not in the White House to be dealing with it, Woodrow Wilson is. Um, Roosevelt, I think initially, sort of agreed with, with Wilson's perspective as far as the war was concerned. He wrote really after the war began, he said something to the effect that, well, when giants wrestle, you know, people are gonna get trampled in, in, in the middle here. Uh, so, you know, even though Belgium was invaded by Ger the Germans, we really can't get involved in this or protest this. But within a short time, he came to believe that Wilson had totally botched this, that we should have protested the invasion of Belgium if we were worth anything as a country. What about Adams? What, what was her, her view? Well, Adams was, you know, a, a big time progressive and reformer. You know, she had made her name getting involved in Hull House. You know, Hull House was a, was a settlement house in Chicago. And that, that had put her on the map. It's like these, these sort of social centers that were set up in the big cities as a way to minister to the poor and the, and the immigrant communities. So she had, she had set up Hull House in Chicago and then she got involved in just about every kind of cause in the late 19th, early 20th century. So she was a, a, a big name in those days. Uh, one of the most famous women in America, although she's not really well known today. You know, some of the interviews I've done for this book, a lot of people have asked me that question. I said, I never heard of Jane Addams before reading this book. Uh, she deserves to be much better remembered than she is. Um, but Adams, her, you know, she was really involved in the suffrage movement before the war began. But when this happened, she really shifts most of her attention to this other great cause, which is pacifism. But when we say pacifism, we shouldn't think of it as nonviolent pacifism. I mean, her idea was more of a dynamic pacifism that the United States should be doing everything in its power to find a way to get the two sides to start talking, get them to the peace table. Uh, this is what the Wilson administration should be doing. They should be making constant outreaches to the belligerent powers. Her big idea, which she, she supported and tried to get Wilson interested in was some sort of conference of neutrals which you know, would be the United States and other neutral powers would get together. And that would act as sort of a bridge to a larger peace conference in the future. So Adams is going to be, you know, and, and her followers will be very insistent on this, that the American uh, responsibility is to try to find a way to end the war, um, whatever way possible. And that's what the United States should be doing, basically throw all of her might on the scale for peace. So those are the three perspectives of these three individuals who were bound by their progressivism, but also they knew each other very well, born around the same time. Uh, you know, so they were, they were, they were all, they were just three random figures I chose this book. These are people who knew each other, interacted with each other, and at times were quite close to one another. Well, now we know, uh, now Teddy Roosevelt, or I should say Roosevelt, Roosevelt was FDR. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, he, he fought in a war. He was in the Spanish-American War. And um, he also, he got a Nobel Peace Prize because of the, uh, the uh, Russian-Japanese War. So we know he liked to get involved. And, you know, he felt that uh, America should have played, um, you know, more of a hand in stopping the outbreak of war, especially uh, since, uh, you know, we all signed on to the uh, Hague Convention. Was that a feasible claim, number one? And number two, was Wilson up to the task of, of, of trying to stop it? You know, when you look at the fact that you mentioned that his, uh, that his first uh, wife had died, um, your book claims that Wilson really was not up to the task. You know, what are your thoughts on what uh, Roosevelt and Wilson? Uh, well, you know? well, you know, TR had said, you know, later on after the fact that if he had been in the White House and any other president worth his salt uh, would have been able to at least get a delay in the early hours, days of the war to get them to at least talk a little bit more to, to stop this from happening. That if the United States had, had made some statements, you know, saying that we will regard this as an unfriendly act, Germany, if you do these things, uh, that Germany would have backed off slightly enough to get, get some sort of conversation or dialogue going on between these nations that would have at least delayed the outbreak of war. This was Roosevelt's belief, maybe it was a fantasy, uh, and maybe it was also part of his own belief that Wilson wasn't, wasn't incompetent as far as that was concerned. But, but Roosevelt did believe that. Um, 
as far as Wilson was concerned, there, there's no question. I think he was having a sort of breakdown after his wife died. And his wife died in August, right when the war is, is, is unfolding. Um, whether it affected his job um, capabilities, I'm not so sure because he was a very driven, driven person, a very, you know, he, he even said the work is what kept him going. I mean, you know, that, that's the way he dealt with emotional issues and problems and, and, and discomfort was to throw himself into his work. And there's a scene in the book where he's walking in New York. This is in the fall of 1914 with Colonel House, his, his advisor. And House documented everything in his diary. And Colonel House wrote something to the effect that, you know, the president, you know, was walking with me on the streets of New York. And he said he wished someone would, would shoot him because uh, he was so depressed. He was depressed about the loss of his wife. Uh, but he said, I'm sure no one will. So I'll just keep on going and do the work that I have to do. So, I mean... It's an interesting thought whether whether he was psychologically unable to cope with what was happening, um, but I tend to think again he was his whole his whole belief system about himself and everyone else was built on self mastery and being able to keep a grip on your emotions. So I'm not sure it really affected his decision. I think he was probably comfortable with how the United States handled things in the summer of 1914. People like Roosevelt came to think he was not. And as far as the Hague Convention was concerned, legal scholars then said Roosevelt was wrong. There was no, nothing in the Hague Conventions that said the United States had to do anything in the situation. Uh, there was nothing legally binding them to do anything. Now, Roosevelt would have said, well, the United States at least should have protested this action, the invasion of Belgium in particular. And perhaps he was correct in that regard um, as a way to, to show, you know, this is what the United States stands for and we're against this kind of, these kinds of acts of aggression around the world. Well, now you mentioned uh, Colonel Edward House. Um, you know, he, it seemed like uh, Wilson relied on him solely. He went and spoke with the English, the, the British and the French. And, and I know that he gave a, uh, a warning saying, these guys want to fight. They want to be in a war. Who, tell us, who is this uh, Colonel House and what influence did he have on the, on the war? Colonel House, to put it mildly, was a piece of work. I mean, he, he, he truly was. I and mean, there's, I don't think there's anyone like him uh, in, in American history, someone who had so much influence on the president, but never had an official title. I mean, House was this guy from Texas who had always been interested in politics. He had money and he had gotten involved in Texas politics, Texas Democratic politics, and he had helped make a few governors and a few, a few successful politicians. But then he decided he wanted to go national uh, in the early years of the 20th century. And in the 1912 election, he eventually got himself introduced to, to Wilson. And soon there was this very, very close relationship between these two men. They seemed to have so much in common and you know, they seemed to think uh, the same way. The problem is you know, a lot of what we know about the Wilson and House relationship comes through House. I mean, House kept this unbelievably detailed diary for years. You know, Every night he would dictate a fairly lengthy um, uh, account of the day. And a lot of what he says, you know, that's why House's diaries are very valuable. And I use them a lot in this book, but they have to be used with care because they're, they're told to the perspective of, of someone who's trying to make himself look really good. Uh, so House ingratiated himself with Wilson, maybe. Might, maybe that's a little too strong to say, but Wilson, you know, soon came to rely on this man. And Wilson had much more trust in House than he did his, his cabinet. He thought most of his cabinet members were, were a bunch of dolts. He didn't trust his, his, uh, his ambassadors. He thought most of them were incompetent, but he trusted House. And House was allowed to go on these, these missions, these sort of, you know, you know this man, man on a mission to Europe even before the war started. And then, then after the war, he, got, he went over a couple of times and he's meeting with all these diplomats. And Wilson believed that House was representing his views, but often House went beyond what Wilson wanted him to do and House did his own thing. And I think House fancied himself more of a skillful diplomat than he really was. And I think there were times when the European diplomats ate him out, ate him up and spit him out. Uh, they, they knew what he was all about and they, I think they played him at times. Um, but I don't think Wilson really realized House, what he was all about until much later, being at Versailles, which I touch on very briefly in the book where Wilson cuts him off at, at, at Versailles in 1919. But they were very, very close for a long time and Wilson trusted him implicitly. And House kind of played this game and I'm the man who wants nothing. I just want to be a devoted friend. Um, but I think he loved what he was doing and loved that he had this, he had no responsibilities to anyone except the president and he was on no leash whatsoever. Um, and he was allowed to have enormous influence in the administration. 
Did did um House's influence overseas with the belligerent nations did did that do anything to assist or did it do anything to hinder um I guess the the effort on on America's part and what was going on against with the belligerent nations did, was there any or was it like you're over here and there's absolutely no reason that you're over here you're just over here talking I mean I think he was looking for ways he and Wilson were looking for ways to find a way to, to, to achieve peace. Uh, the problem was that I think House pretty much promised the allies everything. Uh, he didn't really negotiate them with the way, negotiate with them the way that I think Wilson would have wanted him to do. Pretty much House went over there and said, you know, the Americans want you to win the war. We, we want to do everything we, we can do to help you win the war. Um, so on the other hand, Wilson wanted him to work with the Allies and particularly the British about some of their abuses of international law, their interference with American trade. But House was never pushed that very hard, even though, of course, there were there was weapons that he had in his pocket. I mean, the British came to rely so much on American uh, financial support and loans and things like that. And House really never used that very well. I mean, at one point, House got this deal with with the British, the you know the House Gray Memorandum, where uh, the idea was that the Americans would come in at some point, that there would be an attempt to bring the two sides together, and if the Germans refused, then the United States would probably come in on the side of the Allies. This was this agreement, and House felt this was going to lead to peace. But even with this very sweet deal that the Americans were offering and House was offering, the British still didn't want it. Uh, they, they really didn't want any of these American offers unless they were in deep trouble. Um, I think even there's, there's a letter I quote in the book where I think one of the, the British officials said, if the French can't fight anymore and they're really desperate, then some of these schemes that House is offering might be worth investigating. I think that's what the British basically did. We'll talk to House, we'll listen to his ideas, we'll listen to what the Americans are saying, but we really want to win this war decisively. Only if we are going to lose it or in, in, or, or in danger of, our allies are in danger of, of, of being defeated, will we seriously consider some of these offers that House is making? So to, so to pull back in uh, Jane Adams, now you mentioned, and, and talking about her, her influence internationally, you mentioned how Adams was able to get a conference with German Chancellor Theobald uh, von Bethmann and the Foreign Minister Gottlieb von Jago, or Jagau, I don't know how to say that, but I'm sure I'm butchering it. Um, Isn't that Diego? As long as, as we're not German, none of us are German, so you can say anything where you want. So there you go. <laughs> Jag Al. Yeah. Um, so she got a meeting with them shortly after the sinking of the Lusitania. So how does this prove how influential Adams was uh, internationally? I think she was a, a very big figure. I mean, she was known globally before the war because of because of uh, the work she had done. Uh, and then in 1915, you know, she had helped establish this new peace organization, the Women's Peace Party, which was, you know, this this unprecedented American uh, women women's peace organization. Uh, but in early 1915, she traveled to Europe to be part of this Women's Peace Congress, and afterwards, she and a group of others went to talk to uh, the leaders of the belligerent nations. And yes, as you say, she was a big enough name where once one country agreed to see her, they all had to. So once she went to England and talked to the, talked to the prime minister and people like that, uh, the Germans figured, well, you know, we want to placate the Americans. We better talk to her, too. So it, it's really quite remarkable. It's, it's citizen diplomacy before I think that term existed. Um, and I think they, they were relatively candid with her up to a point. I think both of them said this, both sides said the same things. So yeah, yeah, we're interested in peace. Uh, if you can find a way to bring it, we're not gonna to object to it. Um, but I think it still came down to their, how willing, how far were they willing to go to get peace? I mean, Adams was not under any, any, any illusions about this. I think she was a realist. I mean, Colonel House tried to undercut her and later on he wrote in his diary like, oh, Jane Adams went to Europe and they were not frank with her. Uh, well, many of the people that House met with were not frank with him either. So I think the both sides tended to feel it was important to talk to these Americans, whether it was House or, or Jane Adams or whomever, and you know, show that we're interested in peace because we still want to win the hearts and minds of the American public. I mean, I think both sides were very concerned about 
the role of America in this war before we were ever involved. And the Germans would, would, be, would be happy if we would stay out of this war. So we, the Germans didn't want to antagonize the United States needlessly. And of course, the, the Allies felt the same way. Well, the, uh, so the Lusitania ocean liner gets uh, torpedoed and sunk by a, uh, a German U-boat. Uh, but we didn't go to war. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, Lusitania is sinking, led us into the war. I think, I know it changed sympathies. Uh, but in 19, in the presidential campaign of 1916, Wilson ran, uh, motto was he kept us out of war. So then we have the, uh, we have the, uh, the Zimmerman telegrams, and then we have the, uh, um, the Germany deciding that, uh, you know, they're starving and they need to, uh, start up the unrestricted warfare once again, the unrestricted war, uh, submarine warfare. But now Wilson again ran again, ran saying he kept us out of war. Now he's inaugurated in March. And then the very next month, he declares war and gets us into the war. How difficult of a decision was that for Wilson? What were the reasons in your opinion that got us into the war? Was it Zimmerman and, and the unrestricted warfare? Was there something else behind it? Um, how difficult was it for Wilson to ask for the war? And how was Roosevelt and Adams' reaction to that? Well, there were a lot of different factors swirling around at the end of 1916, as you mentioned. Um, one of the, the big factors was Germany's sense that, well, we can't win a long war. And we got to wrap this war up pretty soon. And especially while we're ahead right now, because the Germans were probably ahead in late 1916. So what they were hoping to achieve in late 1916 was they wanted the Americans to somehow launch some kind of peace, peace initiative, get the two sides to start talking, and maybe ideally that will lead to a ceasefire and a peace conference and the war will end. Germany will, 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 will be probably ahead and get to keep what they, they've, they've conquered up to this point. That's what they were hoping because they knew if the war went on for a number of years, they were gonna lose, they would be worn down. There was no question about it. Um, Wilson was not ready to act yet because he had to win the election. Now he wins the election November, 1916. And what's gonna push him towards acting, not be, because of the Germans need to win the war, but more a belief that he had been warned pretty directly by the Germans. In fact, the Kaiser had sent something over suggesting that we've been, we've dialed back our submarine warfare, you know, to placate you, but we're going to have to resume unrestricted submarine warfare if peace does not come soon, because we got to win this war soon. Uh, that's, that's what's, that's what's coming. So Wilson could see that if unrestricted submarine warfare is resumed, America will be dragged into the war. And he thought, okay, we have to try to avoid that if we can. So in the fall of 1916, after the election, Wilson tried to uh, work on a, on a peace effort. And in December, he did float this sort of peace, peace outreach uh, to both sides, but it didn't really accomplish much of anything. And the Germans themselves earlier in December had, had also floated sort of a half-hearted trial balloon for peace, and that didn't go anywhere either. So the Germans decided in early 1917, okay, this failed we're gonna go back to the unrestricted submarine warfare. Yes, it's gonna bring the Americans in, but if it does, too bad because the Americans have a really small army, number one, and by the time they get it even up to snuff uh, and are prepared to deploy a large force across the ocean, it'll be months from now, and by then our submarines will succeed in starving out the British and we will win the war in six months. That, that was the plan in a nutshell. Um, I don't think anyone really could conceive of an alternate scheme, but that's that's what their scheme was in the early in early 1917. So the Germans made this decision. They informed Wilson of it, and Wilson at that point severed diplomatic ties. So that was the first big move towards putting us in the war was was in early 1917. Um, the other very important factor, of course, as you mentioned, was the Zimmerman telegram. And the Zimmerman telegram was the totally wacky, cuckoo, crazy scheme coming out of the German foreign office by, by some, some of the, i say, the less sensible members of the German foreign office. This idea that, well, let's see if we can get Mexico as an ally. So we'll, if there's war comes, we'll ask Mexico to uh, maybe be our ally. 
uh, and we'll we'll offer them. You know, if they if they set up an alliance with us, they'll even get the opportunity to conquer territory that once belonged to them in the United States, which was totally crazy. Um, what they really were hoping, what the Germans were hoping, I think they knew this wasn't realistic. They were hoping that the Mexicans would type American forces on the border so they can't be deployed in Europe. And they were also hoping with the, with the um, Zimmerman's telegram that this would be a sort of bridge to getting Japan involved, the Japanese uh, as, a, as a potential German ally. So the whole thing blew up in their face when the British intercepted this and then turned it over to the United States and then the Wilson administration leaked it. Uh, this was another, another precipitating factor, but not as big as people say, because I noticed in my research that people stopped talking about the Zimmerman telegram within about two or three weeks. It, it was a, a, you know, it was just another, another thing to consider for Wilson, uh, made him distrust the Germans even more, made the American people quite upset. But I, I think logically, most people realize that the Mexicans, they, their whole country is, is, is practically falling apart at the seams. They've had civil wars for a few years. They are in no position to really threaten us with anything, but still it just showed German underhandedness. So those factors are very important for Wilson. I think the final thing was Wilson's belief that if, if we as America and if I, Woodrow Wilson, I'm gonna have influence in the peace process, the United States has to get in this war. Uh, we won't have any influence otherwise. And there, there's a scene in the book where Adams goes to the White House in early 1917 and, and Wilson tells her this. Wilson says, if I'm not, if we don't send troops to fight, I'll be lucky to get into the peace conference through a crack in the door. And he didn't, he, that was unacceptable to Woodrow Wilson. I think he had this, this view that it was his destiny, you know, to, to, to shape the post-war world and to bring peace and to, you know, uh, America has to fight in this war. You know, it, it's, it's a necessary evil. Uh, it was very discouraging for Jane Addams to hear that coming out of Wilson's mouth. But so I think all these factors, you know, the Zimmerman telegram, the unrestricted submarine warfare, his own belief that we've got to fight if we're going to mean anything as a country, which is kind of what Roosevelt said all along, and we're going to have influence on the peace. Uh, this is why we have to go to war. And that's why in April 1917, as you mentioned, you know, he goes to Congress and gets that declaration of war. Well, that is, um, yeah, it's so many moving parts uh and and your book does a fantastic job of tying in all those moving parts um so many different narratives going on in the book not just uh the big three but you you know you tie in house and you tie in uh the belligerent nations uh the ambassadors and the other diplomats and then you tie in people like henry ford and uh, a bunch of other like pacifists who are who are joining in with jane adams uh, and then you have obviously the cabinet members that are on Wilson's uh, staff. There's so much going on in this book, but you've done a fantastic job of making sure that all of it streamlines uh, in the same way. Now, obviously, this is something that you don't address in the book because this is a what if. This is a last question. Some what ifs. If Roosevelt had been president at the time, one, do you think that we'd have gotten in the war much sooner? And two, with how it panned out, how it worked out with us getting involved in the war, do you think that that ultimately was the right choice? Well, those are, those are some really good what ifs. Um, Roosevelt probably, if he were here, he probably would have said, no, I would not necessarily have put us into the war because what I would have done and I think he was right on this one, is I would have built up our defenses and our military to such a degree that the Germans would never have been as cavalier in their behavior towards us. This was, this was the argument that Roosevelt expressed multiple times against Wilson. Uh, you know, because when the war begins, we have a pathetically small army. We have a 100,000 man army, which is nothing. Uh, so we, we, there's not much we really can do. And, and this is why Roosevelt gets beyond this whole preparedness uh, preparedness movement of, of, of that we've got to be ready for this war and if not this war, the next war that's coming. And Roosevelt even said, I can see uh, Germany, if they come out ahead in this war, might team up with Japan in the future, which is interesting. He, he, was, he was already able to see that happening in the future. So I think Roosevelt probably would have said, I could have avoided war. Uh, you know, he, he often said that Woodrow Wilson was involved in more little wars than I ever was. You know, the Wilson administration was sending men to Haiti and to the Dominican Republic and all these little, little wars um, that I am more of a man of peace than he is. It's funny that all the three characters in this book, Wilson, Adams, and Roosevelt, all won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. So they all had some, some pacifist credentials to them. Um, so that's, that's my take on Roosevelt. 
Um, I think by if Roosevelt were president in 1917 and everything had unfolded the way it unfolded, yes, he probably would have been ready to go to war sooner. But again, he would have said we would not have ever gotten to this point if we had been we would we had been firmer and had more of a military uh, to speak of. Now, of course, Wilson was very uh, hamstrung by Congress. It would be very hard, I think, in 1914 to get Congress to vote for some military buildup. They you know, most people didn't want it in 1914. So even if Roosevelt had been president, I think it would have been very hard to get that through. But maybe he could have. I don't know. Um, second question: Was it the right decision? Some people might disagree, you know, that it was the right decision. There's some, some mentions in the book about this where, you know, Bernstorff, who was someone I do talk about in the book quite a bit, the German ambassador, and Bernstorff uh, later said that, you know, if America doesn't get involved in this war, it's quite possible that there might have been a, 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 uh, a draw in this war. You know, neither side would have gotten the upper hand, and that might have been better off overall for Europe in the future. It may not have led to the, the problems that unfold in the 1920s and the rise of Hitler and things like that. We, we can't know for certain whether that would have happened. Uh, we don't know. Um, but there's certainly an alternate scenario that perhaps getting involved in this war could have been a mistake. Um, I think by the 1930s, many Americans thought it was a huge mistake. There was a, really a backlash against our involvement in the war, this belief that we had, we'd been tricked you know, by the by the munitions people and the bankers that tricked us into going into World War One. I. I think that's why FDR in the 30s had a much harder time getting Americans to realize the threats that were unfolding in Europe because a lot of Americans felt we, we got burned in 1917. We're not going to get burned again and send our boys over to fight in some European war that doesn't concern us. I think even if there had been if there had been polling in 1917, I think many Americans probably would not have been in favor of going to war. I think Wilson, if he wanted to, could have probably kept us out of the war in 1917. He would have been very strongly criticized by people like Roosevelt, but I suspect that much of the American population would have said, we can stay out of this war. You know, the number of men and women and children have been killed by German submarines is not substantial enough to warrant throwing us into this incredibly bloody and destructive war, the worst in history at this point. Now, I was going to ask you real quick that, you know, part of the reason why Germany had the uh, unrestricted submarine warfare was because of the Britain's Royal Navy blockade of uh, Germany, and they, was, they were starving the German people. Um, in 1914, Britain was doing the same thing to the Americans that they did to the Americans in 1812, which almost got us into the war against Britain in 1914. Do you believe in that conclusion? Well, it's funny, Wilson Wilson did. And Wilson made that very early in the war, he made that statement saying, this this seems like a parallel to, to uh, the War of 1812 with some of the naval issues. Um, the, what's interesting in my research, I was surprised to see how much friction there was between the UK and the United States. Um, you know, there's a lot of back and forths. You know, the, the American people were not happy with the interference with our trade and with the, viol the violation of, of, of uh, international law. But as Roosevelt said at the time, and I think Wilson did too, uh, the difference is the Germans were taking lives with their submarine attacks inadvertently. They were intentionally trying to kill Americans, but Americans were being caught in a crossfire, uh, whereas the British were simply interfering with property. Property could be paid for human lives cannot be restored. Um, but the British were at times quite frustrated with the United States. They felt like, you know, we're fighting for our lives here. We're fighting for, you know, democracy and all these good things. And you guys are bothering us about stuff like, you know, goods being intercepted or, or, or opening up mail. You know, can't you just leave this stuff alone until after the war is over? Um, you see a lot of interesting correspondence in the British foreign, foreign uh, archives about, you know, some of the British diplomats saying, these Americans, all they care about is money, and they really don't have a strong connection with us. They, you know, they don't really care about the mother country like we think they do. Um, but I don't think there was ever any possibility of us going to war with with Great Britain or the or or the Allies. There was annoyances with them, but I think in general there was also so much money we were making off them too. You know, the munitions trade with the Allies was astronomical by 1950, 1916. And we're also basically, we're financing their war by the end of 1916. If, if Wilson had simply said, no more loans, that's it, we're not giving you any more money, uh, their entire war effort would have collapsed. I don't think Wilson was aware of that. The American public was not, American people were not aware of it. 
but we really did hold the purse strings by 1916, early 1917. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the book is The Approaching Storm. Neil, I'm going to say this. Um, I've read a lot of books this past year, as I'm sure you well <laughs> are aware. I know Alan is. Uh, one of my favorite books of the past year. It was really good, hard to put down, um, and just so much information and, and gives... And it gave me, but it will also give readers a view of what was going on in America during the, the Great War, the Great European War. And I, I thank you for, for writing it, and I thank you for, for joining the Sons of History podcast. Well, thank you again for your very kind words, and it was a lot of fun being on your podcast. Well, good job. Good job finding uh, this gentleman. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation with Neil. Um, enjoyed his perspective on things, you know, because I've always been a big fan of uh, of the First World War, the Great War. Um, it's a shame that it's not really studied that much in this country, you know, because, you know, it wasn't a feel-good war, you know, that we, we beat the bad guy, you know. There wasn't necessarily really a bad guy in this war, just a lot of bad decisions. And, uh, you know, and the United States really was not in charge of the outcome. It wasn't in charge of the peace that took place afterwards, like we were with World War II. And, um, but I, I did like his perspective. Um, you know, I, I, read, I read a previous book on what was going on with the Europeans. And I know that uh, Colonel Edward House was discussed, uh, but, but that particular book discussed primarily what was going on with all the European powers. This one was uh, um, very refreshing because we got to get the American perspective. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm not that big of a fan of, uh, of, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, I do love, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and I, I have to admit, I was a little ignorant about Jane Addams, but, uh, you know, with this conversation or with this book, uh, I think, uh, people will gain a new perspective and, you know, learn about a lot of the diplomacy that took place, you know. I, you know, I knew that wasn't the case, but but years ago, I thought we went to war because of Lusitania. Um, and then, you know, there was the whole Zimmerman telegram and uh, the unrestricted warfare. And, you know, he the thing that he pointed out was is that the Zimmer, Zimmerman telegram really wasn't that much of a factor. It was really the unrestricted uh, submarine warfare and what the implications were if we did not get involved in the war. You know, because he, you know, Wilson wanted to have his place at that table. And he was very much wanting, you know, the whole Wilsonian democracy came about because of him and our involvement in the European powers because of this war. So it was good to get his take and his perspective on it. And this this book um, really does do a great job in illustrating what was going on during that time period. Yeah, no, it's uh it is a really really good read. Um and I think you and I agree that Wilson is sort of this this figure that you and I not big fans of. Um uh, but this book it's sort of a, a a mix of emotions because during the book especially when his when his wife is sick and then, you know, she she passes away, um it's like he is on just, he's somewhere else. He is not focused on being the president of, of the country. Um, <clears throat> and then he, he recoups and then he falls in love again and eventually gets remarried. But even during that time, he is like, where are you? Like, focus on, on what's going on. There is, there is that frustration with the man who was the president of the United States. But at the same time, there is a lot in here that, presents Wilson as a sort of a sympathetic figure because the, all of this is going on and he is sort of being pulled in, in various ways and there's immense amount of pressures. And it sort of puts you in, in perspective like, man, how would I deal with this situation? Uh, sort of a situation that had never happened before on the scale of what the military might was at that time. This is not your Napoleonic um, warfare. This is modern age warfare that is, that has never been seen before. Uh, the closest, I guess, that the world had more or less seen was probably during our, our civil war. But even, even, even then it's like nowhere, nowhere in comparison. Uh, but yeah, he does a great job. And speaking of Jane Adams, yeah, I didn't know who Jane Adams was. 
uh, either. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure you may have known who she was, but maybe not a lot. But I, I was like, I, I, I don't know who Jane Adams is, but we're going to find out. Um, it, it's such a fantastic read. And yes, it is refreshing uh, that it it deals with America's view, not just the higher ups, but how a lot of just regular people felt about do we get involved in this war or do we not get involved in this war? So highly recommend uh, this book. And speaking of recommending books, book and movie recommendations. Now, I'm going to tell you this, Alan. I know that you said good job finding Neil Lankteau. I'm going to surprise you with this. I may not have told you. He found us. He found us. He reached out to us and was like, hey, man, I really enjoy y'all's show. I'd like to be on it. Hello. So we are moving and we're shaking and we're doing all types of things. Uh, so the approaching storm, go get it. It is now available. It came out October of last year. Um, a fantastic read. You want to add something to it, Alan? Yes. Um, I'm going to recommend it highly. You know, a lot of, a lot of Americans don't realize, you know, that the way we are, the major power in the world, the way we are, we have the greatest military in the world. It wasn't like that prior to the First World War. Prior to the First World War, we were a neutral nation. We, there was no NATO. Uh, there was no United Nations. There was no League of Nations. When the League of Nations was created, we did not ratify the treaty to be in it. We did not ratify the, the Treaty of Versailles. We, uh, we were a neutral nation. We preferred neutrality. We had just, you know, went into Mexico to stop Pancho Villa because Pancho Villa and his horde, you know, invaded the United States and killed some Americans. So, you know, that was the United States. We were so vastly different. We did not, we were not the powerhouse. France, England, they were the powerhouse. Uh, we had, a, you know, and, and it's pointed out in this book is that um, the, the economics of the United States was doing very well. There was a vast difference between how people lived, especially the younger generation, during the first 16 years of the 20th century versus how people lived just 50 years prior or 40 years prior. Totally different. The Industrial Revolution really made America into this economic powerhouse. So get this book. It'll give you a major, major perspective of what life was like in the United States before we got ourselves involved in all these uh, alliances with uh, the Europeans. Yeah. And then, um, you know, speaking of, because I, I know I'd mentioned the part one documentary of what we we're uh, working on with our road trip history documentary, we went to Denison, which is the birthplace of Dwight D. Eisenhower. And what, what ends up happening is what we're, uh, what Eisenhower warned us against, which is the military industrial complex. Now we, we just, we can't not get involved in, in a war. And, uh, I know that we're, you know, trying to stay somewhat hands off during the Ukraine, uh, Russia situation, but man, uh, really like after world war two, like the warning that, that Eisenhower gave has, has not really been heeded, uh, since then. Um, now my movie recommendation, I probably have recommended this before. It is hard not to recommend. Uh, the movie is 1917. It is about world war one, really, really great movie by Peter Jackson. Uh, if you've not, if you've not seen it, please, please go, go watch the film. It's quite good. Quite good. My, my thought was, was that Peter Jackson who did that or, uh, was that the other guy, the one who did the Batman? You know what? I'm going to double check. I know uh, Christopher Nolan did um, uh, the one, the World War II film about Dunkirk. Um, Dunkirk. Yeah, I know he did I that one. I want to say that this was uh, Christopher Nolan who did uh, 1917. So, um, but I, I did want to. I know Peter Jackson did "They Shall Not Grow Old," which is the World War One documentary. Um, but I'm pretty certain this one was Christopher Nolan. So, but I do want to mention something about that movie. 19 wrong, wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. Finally, you're wrong. Was it, was it Peter Jackson? No, it wasn't Peter Jackson. It was Sam Mendes. 
<laughs> but okay, but but the guy, the guy who does Christopher Nolan's soundtracks, music, all that stuff is the same guy. Uh, no, because you're yes, thinking of. Oh, does Thomas Newman do all of uh, Christopher Nolan's music? I thought it was Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, that's what I'm talking about. Hans Zimmer, doesn't he do the music? Thomas Newman did the music in 1917. All right, well, then I guess I'm, I'm batting uh, zero on this one. Um, but but in the movie 1917, the, the day that this takes place, uh, you'll notice it says April 6, 1917. That's the, that was, they stated at the beginning, that was the day the United States declared war on Germany which I don't know if they, they did that on purpose. And if so, was it like a, you know, to, I, I, I don't know. Just, I always wondered, why did they pick that date of all the dates? So, all right, for me, uh, my movie is going to be, and, and I know I've done this one before, but it was such a good movie. And uh, actually it was a mini series, not so much a movie. Uh, but since we were discussing the, the start of World War I, um, 37 Days, which was a BBC miniseries. Can you see it? So it has um, the guy who played uh, Emperor Palpatine from uh, the Star Wars movies. Uh, he plays the uh, British foreign minister. And uh, it, it's, it just, it's, it's a three-part miniseries. It just talks, it shows the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand um and it shows you know you're that fly in the wall in the british cabinet when they're discussing should we go to war or should we not and um you know because there was a great debate you know look uh, germany invaded belgium to get at france but you know do we want to go to war with germany over it you know and some were saying no we shouldn't and others were like yes we have a treaty now i, I did also want to point out that that you can get this there is a four pack Called the World War One, uh, the World War One collection. Now, I have not seen the other. It comes with four DVDs. I don't know if it's in Blu-ray because this is this one. I the copy I have is not a Blu-ray; it's a DVD. But it does come with, and I have not seen these. Uh, it comes with uh, Churchill's First World War. You can see that. Um, Walter's War. Have no idea what that's about. And then Royal Cousins at War. And the, the, these are all BBC presentations. You can you can get the whole thing in this little pack. Again, it's a it's a DVD, it's not a Blu-ray. It was a hundredth anniversary commemorative pack, which I bought many years ago. But yeah, get this. Uh, watch it any way you can. It's it's really good. It's really good. So I've never I've never watched I've never seen those before. I'm going to I'm going to watch those. Those look good. I'm actually going to watch those because I, I, I always I, I do want to learn more about World War One. Speaking of World War One, you were talking about, I think, Europe's last summer um, was the book that you were mentioning from the, the European perspective. Uh, I know after talking with Neil, after recording with Neil, uh, we'd mentioned some other books. I know Paris 1919 is a very good book. If you want to find out what happened after the war was over during the whole um the summer of 1919 in, in Paris and the Treaty of Versailles signing and then trying to get the League of Nations uh, off the ground. Uh, and also the very first month of the war, uh, The Guns of August, if you've never read The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman, uh, please read that. I know we mentioned that quite often. That book we've mentioned on this show a number of times when we typically tie in uh, JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, right. And, you know, I... I... That, that's kind of, I, I would say that that's going to be the trifecta of, of uh, reading about how World War I started was, uh, you know, to get uh, Neil's book, the approaching, uh, get Neil's book, Approaching Storm. I like, I like David Frumpkin's book, uh, Europe's Last Summer. And then, yes, uh, uh, was it Mar Margaret Tuckman? Is that her name? Uh, the, the Guns of August? Barbara, Barbara Tuckman, Barbara Tuckman. Um, Fantastic book also. So, you know, look, if you, you know, there's people keep saying over and over again, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Well, if, uh, you know, right now there's the, the whole war in Ukraine. And if we just jump in thinking war, 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 you know, we're going to find, you know, wars never end easy. Granted, yes, there was the Spanish-American War took you know, four months, but then we ended up getting into wars in the Philippines and that lasted for many years. So, 
you know, wars don't solve problems. Wars just create new ones. Yeah. So, yeah. More often, more often than not, more often yeah, than not, so, unfortunately. And, you know, and history. There's, there's a lot that can, there's a lot that can be learned if we read books like Neil's um, so that we don't just jump, you know, like with what, like I said, with what's going on in Ukraine, rather than us jumping into a war thinking it's the right thing to do. We, we really need to sit and think, you know, there are other things that we need to do now. There are things that we should have done prior to uh, the commencements of hostility. So we, we don't seem to ever learn this world. No, we don't. And yet, when you have people in power, the people in power typically act like they know everything. Um, and this is a great book to sort of point you in that direction. Of like Teddy Roosevelt. Woodrow Wilson, like, and then all these other sort of minor political figures, uh, just feeling like they, they really know everything. Colonel Edward, Edward House would be, uh, one of those people. I think you, you said Margaret Tuckman, uh, I think you sort of combined the two with, uh, Guns of August and Paris 1919. It's Barbara Tuckman and Margaret Macmillan. So there you go. Oh. Yeah. Uh, combination of the two. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is it for the show. We hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do exactly as Alan says. What I say, what was that to read those books? Follow us on. Oh, well for, uh, see, yeah, you know, you need to be a little bit more clear. All right. <laughs> yes. Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to us on YouTube. Now, it's very important you subscribe to us on YouTube because that's how we're trying to spread the word. Uh, we also have our own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. Um, but, you know, I believe, I think this would be a good time. Now, we're on Rumble, but I believe we're going to get back on Twitter, are we not? I was just about to ask you the same thing because I know that we had said if Elon Musk purchases Twitter, we'll get back on Twitter. So I assume yes that we must I, get I, back I, on Twitter. So. I think I think we uh, I think we should get back onto Twitter. So uh, and we were we're 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 on Gitter, but Gitter is just not panning out. It, it just uh, it's not. It's so it's such a heap. Anyways, uh, we'll probably stay on it, but I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a real big fan. Um, speaking of last thing that you need to do, uh, go ahead and shoot us your, your email address so we can add you onto the newsletter. So you can do that. If you email us at the sons of history at gmail.com, or you can just direct messages via our Instagram account or our Facebook account. That is it for the show. We'll talk to you later.